everybody, this is Tyler James. You're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Charlie Sheen couldn't be here, but we're glad you are. Computer, status report. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. No! Good evening, everybody. It's TalkCast95, and if you're Anne Hathaway tonight, it's your night. Either you're an actress or you're married to Shakespeare or both here on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. After taking a week off for the first time in God knows how long, deep in Area 51 at the sub-level 5 reinvented facsimile of the Globe Theater Orifice Probe Examination Room and Hot Tub Showroom, playing the part of Falstaff tonight, the beer, not the fat guy, I am the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight from the North Shore Kraken Nursery, former cardboard wrangler playing the part of a sushi chef in Love Labors 1, it's Kriana. You know there was a sushi chef in Love Labors 1, didn't you? <laughs> we do now. From the stacks of her personal silent zone at the Pastafarian Reading Room playing the part of the generic bear, it's the Zombrarian. Exit. Pursued by me. <laughs> from the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, playing all three witches from Macbeth simultaneously because she's just schizophrenic enough to make it work, the woman who thought a wine press was a busty wench in an Iron Maiden, the dead redhead. Forsooth and prithy. Oh, that was prithy. Okay, good. From <laughs> outpost <laughs> I don't have a lisp tonight. <laughs> uh oh. From outpost Gallifrey, crop circle showroom and nymphomaniac test center in Upper Montclair, New Jersey. Playing the part of Puck because only he can. It's our very own Captain Segway awake by Java. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended. That you have but slumbered here. Ah, uh, who are we kidding? Yeah, seriously, we've been <laughs> asleep for months. Tonight, we give a big hello and welcome to Anthony Del Cole, co-creator of Kill Shakespeare. At whom some we point. Well, you see, now here's, here's the interesting thing, cats and kitties. Anthony was supposed to be on uh, about a month ago. Yeah. And something happened. There was a robot? No. Uh, but something happened. And he couldn't make it. And neither could his cohort. Uh, and his cohort was uh, um, uh, Andy Balanger. No. No? It's Connor. It was Connor McCready? Yes. Anyway. Lord, so, these mortals be. Whoever. <laughs> really so they called them. us. Perhaps, and, and they said, get, perhaps they got angry when we couldn't remember their names. Yes. I know. I know. I know. Shh, 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 shh. Let's pretend we knew. Anyway. So anyhow, they were like very, very apologetic and said, can we please reschedule? And we said, Why, uh, of course we can. Harlan Ellison's done that to us. Why not? So, anyhow, at around quarter of eight, we got a frantic text saying, I'll be ready at eight o'clock. So far, no Anthony, but we are hopeful. Confidence is high. That's right. And somehow we are going to get to kill Shakespeare sometime tonight. But we do have an interesting packed show 
tonight for a couple of reasons. You know what? Uh, if he doesn't show up, I want to be the bear next time. Oh, okay. That's fine. <laughs> I got no problem with that. And because, you know what? We've been off for two weeks. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on. And, and there's been some really, really ugly, ugly rumblings going on in the world of, of sci-fi as well. So we're going to get to the good, the bad, once the ugly. <laughs> we are looking at the ugly for the third half of our show. I feel like we're, we're on Car Talk or something. Because I was going to say. Um, third half of the show. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, we wanted to start off tonight talking about our fans and how cool they have been on Facebook. Haven't they, my dear? Oh, we love our fans so much, and we want to thank everybody. We've been starting these little polls. I did one uh, to see if people would be willing to sign in and jump in, and they did, which was wonderful. So we've been trying to do one a week, and we've had some really interesting results. Um, two weeks ago, because we had Rise of the Planet of the Apes open, I had put in asking folks, who is your favorite simian? And I've got to say that we have a lot of old school fans out there. The number one, believe it or not, our top two, well, actually I'll do our top three, but our number one favorite for Simeon is Gorilla Grodd, uh, well known I, to the readers of DC Comics. There we go. Thank you for those yep. who didn't know yep. who it was. Gorilla Grodd is a highly advanced Simeon who uh, periodically gets armies together and tries to beat up Superman. Um, it's, and and what's his status really... in the reboot? Just curious. Huh? What's his status in the reboot? Oh, I'm not even going to go there. That's a whole other show. <laughs> That's a whole other show. But next to Gorilla Grodd, our next two favorite Simeons were Lancelot Link. Oh, Lancelot Link's Lancelot secret ship. Like, thank you, folks. That and was Cornelius, awesome, guys. And Cornelius from the, uh, of course, the Planet of the Apes series, which I believe he's back in there again. Yes, but and it's not then, Roddy McDowell. Uh, Speaking of Planet of the Apes, we saw Cowboys and Aliens, and that was Wow, that was that was a segue of epic nunness. <laughs> but but what we had with the simians, we had some very interesting names there. A few we had to look up. Although I have to say, we did have two people vote for George W. Bush as their favorite simian. <laughs> which I, which not getting the political ramifications. That was yes, pretty interesting. Well. Um, we had Clyde from Every Which Way But Loose. Uh, can I interrupt you for just a minute, Zombrian? Anthony? Hello. Oh, oh we have there a we guest, go. Everyone. There yeah. we go. We have the Canadian. Woo. <laughs> the Canadian, the Canadian is, is, in is in the house. house. There we go. Anthony, how are you, buddy? Oh, I'm just living the dream up here, guys. I'm just living the dream. <laughs> we, were, we were bemoaning the fact that this was setting itself up to be round two of where's the Canadians this week? <laughs> now I don't get to be the bear. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. We just have, uh, you know, I'm, I've a, uh, basically all of us Canadians have superiority complexes and we think we're better than you guys, so. Ah, okay. <laughs> we will disabuse you of that notion as time goes on. If you said uh, sorry in your cute accent one more time, I'll probably forgive you. <laughs> I'm so sorry, eh? <laughs> uh, 
And I don't understand what you guys are talking about. There we go. Uh, we had a poll. We had a poll. We asked people who their favorite Simeon was. <laughs> How can you stay mad at that accent? You can't. Oh dear. <laughs> All right, no, my, no, my apologies, guys. I know. Uh, basically, uh, since the American dollar is a bit off, um, you know, I thought the timing was off too. So I thought 8 p.m. in the states meant 8 or 9. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again. Nice. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna have some fun here tonight. I can see that <laughs> happening already. So, dead redhead. Let's get back to the poll and talk about what the poll was this week because that was two weeks ago already that was two weeks ago and so this week because of fright night opening i asked people who their favorite vampire was i'm very happy to announce that none of our fans brought up any glittery vampires oh, thank god in thank heaven you. above that's why we love our fans. Um, number one, once again, people went old school. So happy about this. Number one, Bela Lugosi. Even though he's dead. Okay, and can I just dead. say that before the show, Dead Redhead told me that the number one vampire was Bella, and I freaked out a little bit because <laughs> that was not the first person I thought of. <laughs> no, Mr. Lugosi. Mr. Lugosi. And then number two was Christopher Lee, again. Great choice. Number three was Max Shrek, who was our vampire in, um, oh my goodness, it just popped out of my head. <laughs> you blanked uh, on it. From, from uh, Nosferatu. Yes. So, wonderful choices, guys. We also had some fun ones in there. We did, Alexander Skarsgård did get in there. But he deserves to be in there. He's, he's a terrific yeah. vampire. Okay, yeah. what movie is he not in? Oh, God, he's in so many movies this summer, it's not funny. So, so seriously, though, all Planet of the Apes and bad movie jokes aside, I'm sure there's a couple Daniel Craig jokes I could correct, too. But um, <laughs> we, we went to see Cowboys and Aliens last night, and that will be the end of my discussion of Cowboys and Aliens. It, it was about as long as the plot was, so. You know. Well, you know, that's been the knock on it, is that it would have been a great movie had there actually been a plot. Yeah, so, yeah, Sorry. there wasn't. I'm sorry, yeah, there's, know, a, there's an Wilde obvious plot there. I think it's pretty self-evident. It is cowboys versus aliens. And Olivia Wilde. And there's a very, very worthwhile scene with Olivia Wilde. <laughs> oh. There's well, you know, Yay! It's, it's funny because cowboys and aliens, the first time I thought of it, it reminded me of Frankie B. Washington. Hmm. Zombies and cheerleaders. Yeah. You know, it's the same kind of mix. Anyway, <laughs> anyway so we went to see Cowboys and Aliens. And literally 50% of the trailers, Alexander Skarsgård was in the movie. <laughs> I believe that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Uh, he's been so hot in, in True Blood. He's and so it's, hot right now. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, I don't roll that way, but fine. I'm good with that. <laughs> and, I, and I got a, a, a True Blood. Oh, my God. Just keeps getting cooler and cooler and cooler every episode. Especially since they dealt with the fairy deal way better than it was dealt with in the books. Oh, and yeah. They, it was there for 20 seconds, and then they dropped it like a hot rock. Well, no, and then they went back to it that one time when uh, when he kills her fairy godmother. Yes. Which I was Thank a hilarious you. bit. Thank you. But at the same time, the fairies in True Blood didn't suck. I mean, they were pretty awesome. Speaking as, as uh, one myself, being Puck. <laughs> I mean, thank, you, thank you for uh, making sure that we knew 
you weren't going being as I am one myself and just leaving it there. <laughs> I wanted to be specific on that. Um, I appreciate but, that. I mean, it, it, the fairies didn't didn't suck in the in True Blood. It's just you know they weren't vampires, so they didn't suck. Thank you. Bada bum. Needed a drum roll there. I oh, think. Yeah. You're so but you know what? I, I, there was actually some confusion when I went to see uh, a movie the other weekend because one of my friends thought we were going to see Cowboys and Aliens because it was abbreviated CA, but we were actually going to see Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He wasn't disappointed because Captain America was actually a, fa- a pretty good movie. You got your money's worth out of that, didn't you? Love Captain America. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, it was... It was really, really pretty good. In fact, it made me think I should probably watch Thor. Yes, no. Thor was no, no, great. Sarah. Yeah, you should. You absolutely should. Hey, you, John, know you know what that makes me think? It makes me think you should write a review of Captain America for the blog. What a great idea, oh. Java. You know, <laughs> your adoring fans have been talking you in a very long up. time. But, so, yeah, so Zombarian and I have another pair of movie tickets. It's between Glee and Glee. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see. Are you going to go see Glee in 3D? Because it's available in 3D. Probably. I got a, tra- I got a trailer on no, my... No, we won't see it in 3D because I get car sick at 3D movies. I want to see Kurt's puppy dog eyes in 3D. Of course you do. Oh, boy. Why does that not surprise? I will be seeing support? it in 3D and I will be seeing it in regular 2D like a human. <laughs> Screw being like a human. No, uh, you gotta see. You gotta see it in 3D because nothing's better than wheelchairs in 3D. Oh my! Wheelchairs popping wheelies. There you go. <laughs> so anyhow, this week uh, some interesting things happened uh, to the Troy Public Library, and it's a story that we've been following for. That a was long- not this week. That was like. Two weeks ago. I get it. Okay, but we're going to pretend it was this week. Oh, okay, yeah. The Troy Library is safe. Safe! Safe. It's been saved by some awesome Boing Boing readers, which was where we originally picked up the story anyway about, um, was it Asimov's letter? Yeah, we talked about Asimov's yes. letter to the Troy Library with Ben Bova, and that was very touching. And, and many writers sent in letters to the Troy Library wishing it well. And to the children and sending them special messages. Dr. Seuss had one. It's not, not creepy messages. <laughs> nice ones. Like wow. Not creepy Steve messages. Nice. What? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> Unless it was Stephen King, which it might have been a creepy message. <laughs> yeah, it could have very definitely been a creepy message at that point. I'm out of <laughs> hand. I am out of hand. Just... <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the Troy Library has been saved thanks to Boing Boing readers and local activists. Woo! And in other news, what was it? oh, you know what was going with that was Kurt Vonnegut. So a school yes. band Slaughterhouse Five. Of Why? all because... of all the novels of of, of uh. that you could have banned, that is probably the least obtrusive. So it just means somebody had a stick up their ass again. As a former literature teacher, whoever decided that this is the book that needed to be banned needs to be publicly targeted. Okay, okay. you want to publicly shame them? Missouri University professor Wesley Scroggins. 
Okay, Thank I you, understand Ms. you're angry about name, being named Wesley Scroggins. Yes. That's right. You That's know right. what? Don't take it out on poor students who want to actually read good fiction. Um, are you very- saying that a university banned Slaughterhouse-Five? Uh, no, it was, a, it was a, a school board. Okay, you want to hear what he wrote about it? Yes. yes. Okay, and I quote. This is a book that contains so much profane language, it would make a sailor blush with shame. The F word is plastered on almost every page. The content ranges from naked men and women in cages together so that others can watch them having sex, to God telling people that they better not mess with his loser bum of a son named Jesus Christ. You know what else that passage reminds me of? Sci-fi Saturday Night. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what it reminds me of, to be honest with you? The guy uh, in, in uh, Alabama who took the N-word out of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. Oh. I mean, it's the same thing. Look, guys, it's literature. When you invest something into a word, you give it the strength that you're trying to take away from it, and you're the moron. That's right. That's all I have to say. You're the moron, Mr. Scoggins. I... I now, in front of America and the world, challenge you to come on so that I can say fuck not, to you. Not just America and the world, the entire internets. The That's entire right. interwebs. The That's gauntlet right. has been thrown, weasel. Join hey, hey, us. Down, down with censorship. If, you, if you're listening, 4chan, faster pussycat, kill, kill. Uh, <laughs> can, I just say, can I just say that Dr. Wesley Scroggins uh, is a associate professor at Missouri State University. His PhD is from New Mexico State University, which he received in 2003. Um, you can email him at, <laughs> at missourystate.edu, or you can call him at 417-836-5505 and give him your own opinion of Slaughterhouse Five. But let me make this very clear. Dr. Scroggins is a associate professor of business administration. Oh, sweet (laughs) Jesus. That's what we need. More of these morons running the world. His opinion of literary worth amounts to a steaming pile of shit. Is he voting for Michelle Bachman? I'm sorry, I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. But that's fine. I'm good with that. I mean, here's the thing. He's probably got a kid who goes to this high school, and his kid was, uh, was told that he needed to read this story. And he brought it home, and he showed his parents, which is what kids should do when they're assigned to Yes. Work. And yes. as a parent, he had every, you know, right to either allow his child to read the book or not. But making an effort to take the book out of the class was not his prerogative. It is not That's his right. And if he wanted to make a stink about it, that's fine. The fact that the school board went through with it, just... just Shame on them. Well, it's a school board in Missouri, to be fair. (sighs) However, there's a bright side to this story. And I'm going to read read a quote from the Vonnegut Library. We have up to 150 books to share, thanks to the generosity of an anonymous donor. We think it's important for everyone to have their First Amendment rights. We're not telling you to like the book. We just want you to read it and decide for yourself. We will not share your request or any of your personal information with anyone else. So basically, that's in response to all they have to do to get a copy of this book, the students from Republic High. 
they just had to email the library with their name, address, and grade level. Nice. As a former literature professor, I've taught that book, Slaughterhouse Five. I will tell you that it is a chilling story about Billy Pilgrim and his inability to stay stuck in time. It was made into a passably cool movie, and Valerie Perrine was in it. Yeah. But is there nudity? There is. Yeah. There, there absolutely is. But the reality is, no book should be banned. That's right. You know, you know. I, I also want to tie something in here that I read today about us. Actually, I don't. I don't even know why I did this, but I checked our iTunes uh, page today. I noticed yeah. that someone had written a review of, of our oh. podcast, saying they really liked it and they wanted to share it with our fun, except for that we swear too much. You know what I have to say. Too fucking bad. <laughs> they wanted to share it with who? They wanted to share it with their son. If oh. your son is can't handle the word fuck, he's not old enough to listen to our podcast. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. There is a time and place. And, you know, maybe if he's five or six, this isn't the show he should be listening to right now. You know what Thanks he should be doing? Us. He should be watching Eureka because Eureka is a nice, wholesome But show. it's about to go off! <laughs> oh, man. Jesus. Now, if they would only no. cancel Sanctuary no, no. Here's freaking movies here's, and the wrestling, we'd be good. Here's the thing. Awesome. No, you know what? San- Sanctuary and, and the wrestling and those, those freaking Sharktopus movies, I'm sick to death of that crap. At least Eureka was something different. It may not have been everybody's cup of tea, and a lot of science fiction isn't, and that's okay. But there's no reason to cancel a show like that. There really isn't. Well, it had know, a- there, there's a reason to cancel it because I think that they've written themselves into a corner that they don't know how to get out of. And maybe, you know, we have some ideas, but they're not going to listen to us. But the way totally. they did it was a real dick move, which was basically totally. they said, okay, we did season four. That's airing now. Season five is almost done filming. Season six is going to be your last season, okay? Everyone was yep. like, okay, six seasons, good run. No, the fifth season will be Eureka's last. Oh, yeah. Well, now they came around, and instead of telling the actual people involved in the show, they just announced publicly that uh, the fifth season would be the last season, as it's being finished filming. I hate when they do so, that. So there was really no way to wrap up you know, any of the storylines. So now they've, they've, they've come back. They've rethought it. They can have one extra episode. Seriously? Priyana, wasn't there something going on with AMC kind of close to this, too? Well, AMC, despite having record viewership for The Walking Dead, feels the need to make twice the episodes on half the budget for the next season. You know why, though? Because it's motherfucking expensive. No, they gave no, more be- money to Mad Men. Yeah, they gave more money to Mad Men because Mad Men makes them more money, which is understandable. Does it really, though? Cause oh, yeah, it makes them so much more oh, money. Oh, yeah, they Mad franchised Men- that into clothes and home decor and T-shirts and all kinds of baloney. Yeah, well, but Walking mostly, Dead netted most more money- viewers than even Mad Men, so you could think that they would invest more yeah, money Yeah, but in Walking Dead was an epi- uh, a season of six episodes. They were basically mini-movies. And their budget was way higher than a cost of a Mad Men episode. 
um, for the first season. So, so they cut the budget because they need to keep the actors on Mad Men. If they I was don't gonna... those actors, the, most of the most of the money that they're taking from Walking Dead and giving to Mad Men is going to the actors. It's going to salaries, keep, right? They they need to keep those actors if they're going to keep. If they're well, gonna that's keep. bullshit, right there. <sighs> I'm okay with it. I mean, honestly, I'm okay with with Walking Dead having to do with a little bit less budget. That's all right. Oh no, no, this isn't a little less budget. It's it's literally this cut is, in half. Is, no, it's more than cut in half. It's first of all, let's cut it. Cut your season budget in half. Then let's do double the number of episodes for the season. And then let's fire the producer. Yeah. After we paraded him around Comic Con and told everybody how much we love the series. That's right. I mean, well, AMC they fired just... him because all the notes that they gave him for cutting costs are fucking ridiculous, and he decided to tell them that. Because can't we just hear the zombies sometimes instead of seeing them to save money on makeup? Sure. <sighs> you know, in, in a week that was filled with jerk moves, the third jerk move, as far as I'm concerned, is that this week, Fritz Lang's Metropolis comes out on Blu-ray. But it's yeah. the version that was colorized with the rock and roll soundtrack. What? Oh, They're not doing yeah. the original with all the new no. footage? No, it's the raped version of Metropolis. Oh, well, that stinks. Totally stinks. There's no reason for that either. It's a Blu-ray. You have room to do whatever you want on that. You could have like, sure done two different versions on there. That's there, right. The, the whole, the whole, and... There's a pl plenty of a good reason. Because you see Metropolis, and you've heard all the buzz about Metropolis, so you're walking through the store, you pick it up. Oh, shit, this is the sucky one. Now I've got to go buy it again. Uh, yeah. See? Total, uh, it makes total sense. It's or like, uh, you could hop onto like, an undisclosed site and download it. Which one's easier? <laughs> uh, it's it's like uh, it's like George Lucas releasing the new Blu-ray versions of Star Wars. Guess yeah, well, nobody's, nobody's playing that game, so we're fine. No, people not, are playing that game, and that's not, why they're doing it. On the Blu-rays of the Star Wars, there is not the original theatrical release. They are not on there. Yeah. Oh, oh, you want to hear a cool story? I got a cool story. Please give us something happy. Okay, uh, the book, uh, the new comic series... Faith and Angel is coming out in, in about three or four weeks. And Rebecca Isaacs is doing the series. She is a phenomenal artist. And, oh. and, and, and on September 3rd, for those of you guys in the New England area, she's going to be at Double Midnight Comics. That is and cool. I, I'm glad they're finally giving a good artist to that because I hate, oh I hate, I hate to say it, the old Angel series... I had to stop. Well, number one, Joss wasn't reading it, writing it, but the old Angel series, the art just was not up to par. And you know what else will not be up to par? David Fincher says that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is going to be 70% CGI. What? Oh, God. What? Why? Yeah. There's uh, no reason. Well, he, he, you, might, uh, you might know that... Um, uh, this is lazy. He says it's, mm -hmm. it's. He would love to do something more like Avatar than Tintin. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Ew. Both of them are almost completely CGI. Um, so, but Tintin is more cartoony, isn't it? Tintin is a cartoon. 
Well, I, I yeah, it's a total cartoon. Style is cartoony, and Avatar is more like photo real, right? Uncanny or, Valley. Yeah, he's gonna end up in the Uncanny Valley. And <sighs> One more happy thing: Edgar Rice Burroughs got his own stamp, or he's getting his own stamp. And his, really yeah, the cool. timing was kind of cool because Fiction Friday's post this week was Edgar Rice Burroughs, just nice. totally by accident. Well, totally and you know, accident. I mean, no, he's getting a lot of attention right now. I saw the trailer for John Carter. John oh, did Carter. you see that? Oh, did you see it uh, in Dude, the theater? it looks so sweet. Doesn't I, it, though? Sorry. I put oh, my God, it. yes. I, I put know. on my bro cap for a second there. Dude, that looks so sweet. <laughs> awesome, man. I got to go see that. Are, are you a brony? Apparently. My little brony? I- <laughs> Uh, you know, though, uh, talking about movies that might actually be awesome, though, um, Duncan Jones is going to make another sci-fi movie. Uh, if you, yeah, like, I'm, I'm going a little concerned about that. Just well, I mean, we had from him, we had uh, Moon, and right. we had uh, Source Code. See that. Okay, Source and Source Code really bothered me. Well, but Source Code wasn't his movie. He was just he just directed it. It wasn't his idea, but it was his first big right. budget movie, um, and that makes sense. You know, Moon was on a tiny budget, and then Source Code was on a big budget. So now he's talking to WETA about doing a big budget sci-fi film. Um, and, and let's not forget he's he's David Bowie's son. Of course, you don't forget that. That's the cool part. <laughs> oh my God, that's the cool part. He says he said what he said is he'd like to do something that would be an homage to Blade Runner, not a remake of Blade Runner. Thank you. An homage to Blade Runner. Well, I got to tell you, you know, there have been enough, uh, like the Adjustment Bureau, uh, you know, that that were bad, kind of not really good versions of Philip K. Dick stuff. And there's plenty of good source material out there. Mr. Jones, give me a call. I'll be happy to set you up with a couple of good books to read. So what you're saying, Dom, is if it's bad, it's not really good. Yeah, kind of exactly what I'm saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what is really good? Tell me. Kill What's really good? Really? Is that really good? It is. What is okay. good? So, Kill Shakespeare. Ah, yes, it is. So, when we were at Boston Comic Con, uh, the real Boston Comic Con, not the fakey one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I found out that Kill Shakespeare was going to be there, uh, Drew said to me, I really, really, really like these guys. It's a really good comic. So she I went. <laughs> Thank you, Queen Smartass. In any case, <laughs> joining us in the second half of our show, Anthony Del Cole. Anthony, how are you? I'm doing perfectly fine. How are you guys? Uh, well, we've been we've been ranting and bitching for the past half hour. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm kind of scared of all of you now. You guys, cool. you guys have, you have your claws out. I'm really I'm I'm kind of petrified. Uh, not to worry about it. Not to worry. About <laughs> you, you're it. fortunate yeah. enough that we really like your comics. So oh, phew. Woo. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you know, when we met you at Boston Comic Con, I I actually uh, got an autographed copy for Drew, my daughter, who said, you know, if you happen to see them. Tell them how much, how really cool they are. So uh, when you and Mr. Belanger were there, I sat and we talked for a while. And then we said, 
you know, you guys really should come on the show because this is a really cool comic. Let's let's talk for a little bit about the comic itself, since you're the co-creator, uh, where it came from, and uh, how it went from that that germ of an idea into what is an actually pretty cool comic. You're on. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, no, it was a pleasure meeting all, all of you guys at Boston. That was uh, not only my first time at Boston Comic Con, but my first time in Boston. Uh, and and period. Um, so I mean, it was a great city, and it was a great time at Boston Comic Con. It was fantastic meeting all of you guys. Um, Kill Shakespeare. Yeah. I mean, uh, for those that are listening that are not familiar with the comic, uh, very briefly, it is a action adventure story where we take all of Shakespeare's greatest heroes and his most menacing villains and put them all together. In the same world, same story, same adventure. They're all on a quest to track down and kill or save a mysterious wizard by the name of William Shakespeare. Um, so it's actually an idea that myself and my uh, co-creator and co-writer, Connor McCreary, came up with uh, nine years ago. Uh, we were just sitting around uh, one day just brainstorming ideas for video games, uh, and the title Kill Bill came up. You know, the, the Quentin Tarantino films. We thought, wow, you know what? That would make a pretty kick-ass video game. But I'm sure someone's already done it. Or if they haven't done it, I'm sure they're, you know, it's in development right now. But what if we could find, you know, then we thought, okay, well, what if uh, we still like the title Kill Bill? What if we can find another Bill? So we thought Bill Clinton. No, nah, it's too political. <laughs> you know, we thought Bill Cosby. Ah, the wardrobe for the sweaters. That would just cost way too much. Uh, we thought Bill Shatner, but we're like, no, he's fellow Canadian. You can't kill him. <laughs> so eventually, uh, for somehow, you know, for some reason, it just came up Bill Shakespeare. We're like, wow, yeah, that would be kind of cool. It'd be kill Bill Shakespeare, and it'd be this, uh, all of his characters together on this quest to kill. Wow, you know, that's actually a pretty cool idea. Um, and from there, we went down. You know, we went off, and we thought, okay, well, instead of a, a video game, maybe it's something else. So we thought maybe it's a film. We sat down. We wrote like a twenty-page uh, outline of what a story would be, whether it's film format or prose, like a book or a play or something. Um, and then we shelved it. Uh, we put it on the shelf for a couple of years. Uh, for uh, for a couple of years, because I was busy in the music industry. Uh, I was a music manager up here in Toronto, and then uh, Connor was in broadcast journalism. But it was the one idea that kept on gnawing at us. We just we knew there was something there. We knew it, it, it had a lot of potential. It would be really cool. Um, and then, um, well, Connor previously, you know, in a previous life or previous existence, had worked at one of the top comic book stores here in Toronto, the Silver Snail. Um, and uh, up until then, I was, you know, I was never a big comic book guy. You know, Connor, Connor's kind of the comic geek, and I'm the Shakespeare geek of the two of us. Um, and but he had introduced me to titles like Fables and Why the Last Man and Walking Dead and all those, and I realized, wow, you can tell some pretty good stories in this format in this medium. Um, and we just kind of uh, about three, maybe four years ago, we kind of sat down. We're like, well, what can we do to bring Shakespeare to life? You know, what would be the best thing to do? Would it be a play? Would it be something else? And then I kind of said, well, what if it is a comic book? And then Connor's like, well, I don't know. I was like, well, no. I mean, you could tell some really great stories. And, you know, I mean, you know, for instance, we always joke about the fact that if Shakespeare was alive today, he'd be doing this. Um, you know, because, I mean, if you look at his stories, I mean, some of, there's some really cool stuff that happens off stage. He was just never able to stage because of budget restrictions or, or 
resources or anything like that. But in a quick book, I mean, in the first issue, you can have this large-scale epic pirate battle, you know, that they talk about in the play Hamlet, but you never see. Well, we can do that in our first issue. So we thought, wow, you know what? Maybe maybe it would be a great medium. And I mean, from there, we, uh, Connor and I quit our full-time jobs here. We went out, we raised private funding so we could pay for uh, all the overhead costs and the marketing and uh, art costs and that. And then we went to the New York Comic Con in 2010, or sorry, 2009, February. Um, and that was my first comic, ex- uh, first Comic Con experience. So wow, that was. Uh, it took about three or four hours to get used to it. Just complete, <laughs> complete sensory overload and all the costumes and the pageantry. Um, but no, I mean we sat down. We kind of bluffed our way into meetings with publishers, including IDW. And by the end of the weekend, we had five offers. Uh, and we signed with IDW nice. for months. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, we were we were really really fortunate. And we sat down with uh, you know we decided to sign with IDW a couple months later. Uh, and yeah, the first issue debuted last April, so April 2010. Uh, the first 11 issues are out. Issue number 12 actually comes out next Wednesday, so the final issue of our current series. Um, so we're really looking forward to uh, wrapping it up and uh, seeing what everyone says about uh, this, which is our kind of our first story arc. Now I'm really excited. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, how did when you... you th- go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you guys kind of did the, the typical split down the middle for most of the good characters, bad characters. We have Iago being Iago, because that's what he does best. Was it that clear in your mind of how to do the split, or were there some that you were like, you know, maybe it would be kind of cool if we made this one a bad guy or this one a good guy? Or um, for the most part, I mean, we we basically stick to what they were in the original plays. I mean, okay. for instance, R- Richard the Third uh, is, in essence, he's he's a bad guy down to the core. So we thought, okay, well, he's he would be the ultimate villain in our story. You know, mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth uh, as well, you know, she's kind of evil. I mean, she's the one that's yep, manipulating perfect. everybody. So we thought, okay, well, she's got to be the villain. Um, I mean, we kind of, it was it was kind of cool. I mean, uh, we've been asked in the past, well, how do we come up with uh, which characters to, to incorporate? And we always joke about the characters kind of came up and, uh, you know, jumped in front of us and said, well, we want to be in this. Um, because, I mean, it kind of, it was, it was quite clear. I mean, we knew that we wanted Juliet. I mean, Juliet's actually one of the more controversial characters in our, in our story just because um, Juliet in the play, Roman Juliet, although it's probably the most, uh, most popular or at least the most well-known of Shakespeare's plays, there are a lot of people that don't like it. And the reason they don't like it is because Juliet and, it's, you know, and Romeo to some extent, but Juliet is this whiny little schoolgirl. She's worse than Bella in Twilight. You, you, um, as a lot so of you haven't say. spent a lot of time around teenagers. It's it's funny because I mean most most females that I talk to that that you know that have read Rome and Juliet, whether it's recently or whether it's ten years ago, they're like, yeah, I just didn't like that character. You know, she's just whiny all the time. And but we but when we took another look at the play, we we thought about it and we're like, well, she's actually the one that drives a lot of the action. Like she's the one that convinces Romeo to do this and to do that. And we thought, okay, well, if we take a character and she survives this type of ordeal and uh, you know she's resuscitated and brought back, I mean, it would just be natural that you know seven or eight years later she would be the leader of this rebellion. So, I mean, she was kind of, she was one of the more obvious characters. I mean, Richard, Lady Macbeth, Falstaff is the ultimate comedic sidekick. You had to throw him in there. You had to throw Othello because, you know, he'd be the best sword fighter, but also he's really, really conflicted, probably more than anyone else. 
Um, so, I mean, it, they're all kind of obvious. And then as to what side, quote unquote side, uh, they are on, I mean, that's that's also quite obvious with the exception of one character, which is Yago, as you brought up. Because, you know, what's great about him uh, as the series has gone on, I mean, first he starts out on the quote unquote villain side, then he kind of comes over to the good side, then he's on the bad side, then he's on the good side. He's playing everyone off one another. Um, so it, it got to the point where some points I'm like, I can't remember what side is he on this issue? <laughs> but see, that's Iago, though. That's totally that, his character. That That's Iago to T, yeah. Uh, the one character, though, that was the uh, the least obvious was actually our main character, Hamlet. Mm. Uh, because in the original incarnation of Kill Shakespeare, or Kill, uh, Kill Will, as we called it originally, um, it was actually someone from today's world. It was like this this cop that whose father had just been murdered, um, you know. And he was kind of mopey and depressed and that sort of thing. And he finds this portal into the Shakespeare land, you know, kind of oh. like in the Matrix. Um, and then we we toyed with that. We liked it uh, because you know he'd be able to come back into this world where he kind of he knows who Juliet is. And it's like, oh shoot, where well, where's Romeo? He's like, you're destined to be with Romeo. Or he would know who Othello is roughly because. You know, everyone in North America and Western and English-speaking languages, they know who all these characters are. Uh, right. But then, but then we were afraid the tone would be off. We thought, you know what, people might people might think this is more of a comedy. This might be more of like a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, um, or something like that, or Black Knight, that really bad Martin Lawrence film that I can't believe I'm even referencing because I'm sure nobody has heard of it or seen it, or if they have, they don't want to acknowledge it. Um, you don't acknowledge so you it, but no problem. Positive, like like a Yankee in King Arthur's Court or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, would, it would be more childish or be more comedic, and we really wanted to capture the serious tones of this. Our our whole goal with this is it's it's we always say our cross sell is Lord of the Rings meets uh, Shakespeare in Love, which is kind of an interesting one. But I mean, we really wanted to capture that tone of Lord of the Rings, that large epic uh, canvas to 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 paint the battle scenes on, to paint the conflicts. You know, everything about Shakespeare is operatic. You know, it's all larger than life, and we That's wanted right. to kind of right. we wanted to bring that pathos and that that tragic uh, element to to our story. So uh, I'm not sure if everybody has everybody caught up on all eleven issues because I wanted to ask a question. I am. Go ahead. You're good. Okay. So <laughs> so in the last issue that that we got, issue eleven, um, Hamlet actually comes face to face with William Shakespeare. I yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah. Spoilers! Um, so, Spoiler alert! Yes, yes. I mean the whole. Uh, you know, as I said at the outset, I mean the whole. The whole oh, sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm cutting you off your question. Well, no, I well, mean it's not like it hasn't been building to that, right? So, so the. I think what you were going to say was that the kind of the whole impetus of the storyline was to find or um, kill William Shakespeare, and you know he's this mysterious figure, and all throughout the uh, the story. Figures are figures are basically substituting the name the, the word God with the word will mm. uh, in their in their daily speech. So he's kind of a larger than life character. And, and when Hamlet comes face to face with him, the encounter was not at all what I expected. Um, he, the the person of William Shakespeare is not larger than life. He's a very kind of broken person. So, like, how did you approach the you know? that point in the story where literally Hamlet meets his maker. Can, can, can I just ask a question before you do that, before you answer that? And, and the question I have to ask is, are you a fan of Star Trek, Anthony? Uh, 
Um, I unfortunately can, uh, cannot say that I am. Uh, not that I'm. Not that I don't like it. I, it's one of those series or one of those uh, franchises that I just never really have gotten into, other than the the J.J. Abrams remount uh, from two years ago. And the reason that I ask, and I don't know, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, Java or not, but there was a, a Star Trek movie in which they went back in time and met Zephram Cochran. Ah, uh, yes. And this last issue very much reminded me of that in that this revered figure is actually a real person with feet of clay. You know, and it had that, that yeah. whole kind of feel to it. And I was, from my point of view, I was just wondering if, uh, if that was uh, where you had gotten that, where, you know, that idea had come from. But I digress. <laughs> uh, n- yeah, no, that's not it. I mean, uh, with this, I mean, yeah, uh, as as uh, as you mentioned, um, man meeting his maker is is one of the storylines, one of the themes that kind of came up very early, very early on. I mean, it's it's funny because I mean, very early on in our first time, we, Connor and I sat down to kind of start to map out what the story was. We kind of knew how we wanted Shakespeare to be at the end. Um, you know, there's this flawed god, this flawed creator who has basically put all of his characters or all of his, um, you know, all of his children out into this world and, you know, realize that, you know, they're not perfect and subsequently he's not perfect. And what do you do? I mean, in, in essence, it's like a flawed father. I mean, you know, you can, only, you can only supervise and guide your children as much as possible before they start making their own mistakes. Um, and you just have to realize that that's part and parcel with the whole process of that. But our character just doesn't like that. He wanted to create this this paradise, uh, this oasis where all these characters are fantastic and they live such wonderful lives um, and with their offspring and, you know, just continue on in this world. And that's not the case. And so instead of actually standing up and going, wow, you know what? I've done as much as I can, and I'll be there to support them, but, you know, they have to live their own lives. He basically runs away. He's almost like a deadbeat daddy in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he's kind of faced with the fact that, you know, he's, he's not perfect himself, um, and that's kind of put him onto this, you know, um, put him into this hermetic-type lifestyle, which we thought was really intriguing because, you know, as you said, um, you weren't kind of expecting that. Um, and yeah, we really like to play with that notion of you. you there's this buildup for nine issues. Who is the Shakespeare? What's it going to be like? You have some people saying he's this wizard. Some people saying he's the creator. Some say he's benevolent. Some say he's actually dead and, and he never existed. And actually, surprise, this is what he's actually like. And, and it's great because it's parallel with ha- for Hamlet and his own father. I mean, his own father was flawed and Hamlet's flawed. And so they all have to realize, hopefully, in the 12th issue that, you know, that's okay. That's really interesting because one of the things that's, that's pivotal about all of Shakespeare's plays is, is that he he uses a character's flaws to to talk about you know everyone, uh, humanity in general. Yes. So it, it's yeah. No. You, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. He's portrayed as a flawed as a flawed person himself. Well, and th- and that's the thing. I mean, this even goes back to the the heroes or you know heroes and villains question. I mean, because really, at the end of the day, what was great about Shakespeare originally, you know, with his plays, is that he never had like a one hundred percent villain. You know, yes, Richard the Third and Lady Macbeth were very devious and maniacal and Machiavellian, but. The great thing about Shakespeare is he also brought out the human side. He's like, well, you know, you kind of sympathize with him. I mean, people always say that Shylock is this a racist character, and yet he's able to put some scenes in where, you know, you actually start to feel sympathy for Shylock because he's losing his daughter. 
and there's always been anti-Semitism in that play or in that world, so he's had to deal with that his entire life. So he's got that very thick skin, and his the way he defends himself is by being by being cruel to everyone. So I mean, that's absolutely what's fantastic about Shakespeare, and makes him perhaps the greatest writer of all time, uh, is that he's able to to portray. And because when you think about it, and I know this is kind of a cliche in storytelling, but no villain actually thinks that they're the villain. They actually think they're the good guy. So that's right. You know, and so with Shakespeare, I mean, we want to. We didn't want to have this benevolent, um, omnipotent God or character. We wanted someone who himself was flawed. Now that you folks have done this, you're you're closing out this comic, and it sounds like you're going to have a a, a final the episode the the last issue was going to wrap everything up theoretically, or at least most of the things. Where are you guys going to go from there? Uh, there's a number of things that uh, are on the horizon. Uh, one is we want to continue on the series, and IDW has expressed interest in continuing it, and we've had, and that's based on the readership levels, the sales, uh, the critical reaction. I mean, we're uh, uh, even next week we're heading down to Baltimore for the Comic Con, which are nominated for Best New Series for the Harvey Awards. Um, but I mean, we want to continue on. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was it was completely it was completely surprised us because we're still new. This is our first comic book project. So normally when you look at the Eisner nominees or even most of the Harveys, you know, these are, these are veterans that have been in the industry for 5, 10, 15 years. So to be, in that, to be nominated in the same category as Stephen King, say, and Scott Snyder, I mean, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, but no, I mean, so we want to continue on the series and beyond that, uh, we've had a lot of, um, the next step right now is a feature film. Um, so Connor and I have backgrounds in film up here in Canada, so we're actually working on the screenplay. We've secured uh, funding up here because we have a very, we've got a number of great film organizations here in Canada that support uh, screenwriters and producers. Um, so we've received funding to work on the screenplay and even before the first issue came out last April, we had a lot of interest in Hollywood because they see this as a Lord of the Rings, Pirates of the Caribbean style of potential you know, live, live action feature film. So we're working on the screenplay. Uh, and we'll be probably, I mean, I don't want to say anything for sure, um, but we've been in discussions with some potential film partners, so there will be a deal at some point in, in the near future. I was just going to say, are you going to have David Cronenberg directed for you, but <laughs> not down his alley. But. All right, all right, all right. Fantasy cast, go. Fantasy cast. Nice. Everybody asks that question. Uh, um, all right, Fantasy Quest, uh, fan, uh, not Quest, sorry, Fantasy Quest. That's a, that's a video game, that's right? That's a game, right? <laughs> that's a game, yeah. Fantasy Cast, all right, so um, you guys would shoot me if I said Robert Pattinson in the role of Hamlet, so I will not say that. Oh, David Tennant, David Tennant. Oh, David Tennant. Oh, David Tennant. You know, David Tennant might be good. Do you think he could play Iago? Yes. 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 Oh, wait, 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 wait. How about Billy Piper as Juliet? Oh, no. no. Yes! Yes! No. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, so, so very briefly, Hamlet, uh, Ryan Gosling, I really like. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think, he can bring, I think he can bring the brooding uh, nature to the role. Uh, if not him, then maybe James McAvoy. Oh. I think he can Good. I, I liked him. I've, I've liked him since uh, Last King of Scotland. I thought he was very yes. good in, uh, in X Men, uh, very good in Wanted. Uh, you know, like in Atonement. I mean, all of those pieces. He's been fantastic. Juliet. Uh, let's go with uh, Emma Watson from Harry Potter. Yes. Ooh, sure, okay. I can see that. 
Uh, Othello, we'd go with Othello would be either uh, Idris Elba from The Wire, Stringer Bell, uh, or uh, Jamon Hansu. Uh, Yago, Yago's Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman would be good, actually. Alan no, actually, no. Alan Rickman would be better as Richard the Third. Yeah. Yes. Would. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Falstaff. Fal- I think David Tennant as Iago is is a really interesting choice. Yeah, because we've always we've always thought for some reason you cast him as like a Spanish guy, like you put like Javier Bardem or something like that in that role. Uh, but David Tennant would be interesting. Uh, and then other characters, uh, Lady Macbeth. We want Julianne Moore. Uh, oh, nice. Of yeah, uh, and I think this would be the kind of role that I mean, if we do it right, I mean, she could just knock this. She could hit a grand slam with uh, playing the role of Lady Macbeth. Um, Falstaff would either be Paul Giamatti or Simon Pegg. Oh, Paul Giamatti would be oh, awesome. Paul would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, what other characters? So we've gone through Richard. Yeah, I think those are all the major ones. Um, and then Shakespeare himself. Uh, we've kind of turned around the number of options. I mean, Ewan McGregor I thought would be kind of interesting. Uh, Colin Firth, or if you want to go, uh, if you want to go like uh, very meta. You go with Joseph Fiennes, who played Shakespeare in uh, Shakespeare in Love. Nice. <laughs> nice. Good. That's good. Like those choices are really good. <coughs> well, actually, I, actually, I'd like to ask you guys. Uh, um, I'll throw this back at you. What? Uh, I mean, just quickly off your to- off the top of your heads, what director do you think would be good for a Kill Shakespeare movie? Guillermo del Toro. Yes. <laughs> Did not even have to Jones. think about it for Go to go to person for any movie like this. Mm-hmm. Well, my only my Jones. Only, yeah, see Duncan Jones. I mean, because I just recently I, I just saw Source Code the, the uh, last week. Um, so I mean, I know you guys had mentioned it. So I was like, wow, I wonder if he's good because I li- I liked Moon and Source Code. Although the end, the last five minutes are horrible, and I did have some problems with the actual sci-fi in it. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was decent. Uh, but yeah, Duncan you know, Jones. He said in his interview that he wants to do a different genre after his next, his third movie. Yeah. Ah. ah that would be that would be interesting. Yeah. No, and I actually I, I remember I, I have chatted we have chatted once or twice with uh, one of the producers for Moon. Um, so I mean that that might be a possibility. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, of course. I mean he's the go-to guy for everyone these days. Although it seems as though he can't seem to get a film off the ground. I mean his last two films have not. Uh, you know, at the last minute, they seem to have been uh, rejected for, well, funding, he's got the one for he, funding purposes. The one that he produced. What is about, about, uh, about what about Alfonso Cuarón? Uh, Troy Nixie is about to come out. Do you know who Alfonso is? No. no. Fireworks! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sorry guys. Congratulations. Oh, all right. I think I'm back. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, there you are. You're back. Did you All right, I'm sorry. Where, where did we get cut off? Um, you were Skype asking is us an to... asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Oh, 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 oh. James Marsters is Iago. James, no, sorry, I like James? Alan Rickman better. No, <laughs> Alan, no, Alan, sorry. David Tennant. David Tennant. David, David Tennant, all right. So, Alan, Alan Rickman is, is Richard the Third. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, well, of course. Yeah, he'd be quite, he'd be really good in that role. Oh my god, he would kill it. Yeah, all right, so the directors you guys are suggesting are um, Duncan Jones or yep. Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, absolutely. What about, uh, what do you guys think of uh, Alfonso Caron, who did the third Harry Potter film? 
I've I not like seen. It. Wait, did I see which one is the third one? Oh, I knew you'd ask me that question. Uh, I can't remember. He did. Uh, he, Azkaban he or is it Goblet of Fire? Goblet of Fire is the fourth one. Oh, I can never remember. I always get that. Yeah, I think it's Azkaban. That's one where uh, Gary Oldman shows up for the first time. I think. You know, I think I didn't like that one. I don't think I like that one either. Yeah, he he did Children of Men and a bunch of others. See, Children of Men, I liked a lot. I thought Children it was a flawed. I thought yeah. it was a flawed film. But I still liked it a lot. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, it's completely flawed. But I mean, just the cinematography and the editing, and just the, uh, the 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 mood that he was able to create. Like some of the camera work is phenomenal in that film. The, the yeah. camera work in the in that shot out building, that oh, yeah. shot out apartment complex is oh, yeah. amazing. Well, it's really it's, well done. Well, the one the one where in the where they're in the car and the, and the rebels attack. That's even better. Like yep. they were able, they had to create a whole like three sixty camera thing where the camera swooping inside of the car and outside and around all. It's all one shot. It's phenomenal. You know what? You know what though? I, I got a better idea. Instead, Frank Darabont. <laughs> he's not doing anything. Exactly. He's, he's looking for work these days. Just, just promise me it won't be Michael Bay. That's all I say. Oh, yeah, God. please, please no. Kill Shakespeare plus pyrotechnics and Transformers. So, but what if we went with Brett Ratner? Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's always uh, a joke. I have one more question for you. Um, yeah. I, I actually recently picked up the, the IDW comic book app and I saw that Kill Shakespeare is one of the ones on there. Surrounded by um, G.I. Joe and <laughs> a, few other, a few other comic book series that I, I, I will never read. Um, so I'm waiting because I can probably get uh, Kill Shakespeare on here faster than I can get down to the comic book shop. So yeah, and, and the first two issues of Kill Shakespeare are free on, on, on iTunes right now. Yeah, so so what has your experience been in working with IDW and doing digital comics, et cetera? Uh, IDW has been great to work with. Um, the, one of the major reasons we wanted to work with them is because they were one of the uh, um, uh, trailblazers uh, in, the, in, the, in the digital comic space. I mean, they were one of the first uh, companies to put their comics on iTunes, and they were selling quite well. Um, so, I mean, in terms of working with IDW, they've been great. Um, I mean, they're, they're still a relatively small company, so I mean, there's only so much they can do, and I mean, we're still a small title. I mean, we don't sell as many um, uh, issues as Transformers or the aforementioned G.I. Joe, but I mean, you know, so they've helped out a lot. I mean, but as indie creators uh, for a title like this, I mean, you have to do a lot, of, uh, a lot of the work yourselves in terms of marketing. So, I mean, coming on to shows like this, you know, just sending out press releases, going to all these conventions and just spreading the word. Uh, you know, there's only so much that IDW can do, but what's great is, I mean, they really like the series, they've really gotten behind it, they really pushed for it hard for the Harvey Awards, um, and I mean, they've uh, they've been very hands-off creatively, like, they just give us a lot of leeway um, to create our own story, and, uh, you know, and they've, they've given us the, the opportunity to kind of uh, come into our own, because from where we started on the first issue to where we are on issue number 12, I mean, we can tell not only the artwork has gotten better, the writing's gotten better, it's more compact, it's more concise, uh, and the reviews have gotten better and better each issue, uh, which is kind of cool. So no, but IEW has been uh, you know a great great company to work with, and I'm so glad that we 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 have been uh, lucky enough to work with them. And there's not a guy in a rumpled suit with a cigar in his mouth going, "Put some more goyles in it, would you?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, oh, you've, you've met Lady Greg. Macbeth is plenty 
enough woman for any Oh, yeah, person. absolutely. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. It, 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 it was funny when we first uh, worked with Andy Belanger, a really talented artist. Um, he, um, you know, when we got him to do the character designs for Lady Macbeth, it seemed, you know, we had to get him to do three or four passes at it because we're like, can you reduce the breast size, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it. Um, and I mean, still at the point now, I mean, they, they've got to be like D's right now. So, um, but yeah, you know, she is very you baba balance territory. <laughs> hey, hey, when I'm reading the Elizabethan English, that's what I see in my head. <laughs> we know that's always what you see in your head, though, John. Yeah, yeah but the issue I is not only... the boater boating involved. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, how we've degenerated. This is clearly not safe for that woman's son. No, clearly not. But I really hope she's... Neither is Lady Macbeth, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch the Shakespeare. We should ban it. We should ban Shakespeare. Ban Shakespeare. Ban Shakespeare. Laced with profanity. Too many breasts. It is. Actually, you know what they're really saying? <laughs> there, there was a one point where, uh, very early on, before uh, before we actually had our publishing deal, we were when we were in the midst of raising funding up here in Canada. We went to one um, government funding organization, and uh, they actually they agreed to fund us up until the very day that we were supposed to sign the contract. Uh, where at the last moment they pulled out and they're like, "Well, wait a minute," you know. We asked them, "Well, why is that?" And they said, "Well, according to your description here, it mentions bloody violence." And our response was, well, yes, it's Shakespeare, and Shakespeare always has bloody violence. That's It's been taught for, you know, 200, 300 years now. I'm like, well, we're kind of uncomfortable with that. I'm like, well, we're kind of uncomfortable with you then. Thank you very much. Yeah, good for yeah, you absolutely. guys. Absolutely. Good job. Well played. Yes. There was half of me that was upset that we were, you know, that we weren't getting the funding, but the other half of me is like, hey, it's our first censorship case. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> That means you're doing something right, I think. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. When you exactly. can piss off a guy in a suit, congratulations. You've done a good job. <laughs> so well, I feel, I feel okay. like Anthony might want to stick with us for the next segment. Can, can you stick with us for about 15, 20 minutes? Unfortunately, I can't, guys. I'm really sorry. I have, I have another appointment I've got to head up to uh, at, the, at this time. There's nothing uh, going on in Canada after 9 o'clock. We know this. <laughs> no, you no, understand. No, after 9 o'clock, that's when the maple syrup uh, flows for free. <laughs> <laughs> like you just, you, you, I basically bring all my contents from my fridge and they throw maple syrup all over. It's fantastic. <laughs> and you go enjoy a Molson or two. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, yes, yeah, thanks thank a lot, man. So really appreciate it. No problem. And let the hugs, hugs to Andy from the Dead Redhead. I will. I will pass it on to him. Uh, and thank you very much for uh, for having me on there. Uh, on the show, guys, this has been fantastic. For those that are listening that uh, would love to find out more about Kill Shakespeare, uh, I'm sorry, I've, you know, as an indie artist, I got to put out this uh, plug: uh, www.killshakespeare.com. That gives you oh, it'll be right on the website. Not oh, perfect. A problem. Oh, perfect. Okay, awesome, guys. Thank you, and I'd love to come back sometime. You're welcome back anytime. All right, and this time I'll actually show up on time. That would be That's interesting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Anthony. All right, thank, thank you. you. Okay, right. bye. All right, so section three of our three-half program here. <laughs> For the third half of our show, Since, lady since lady. I brought it up, should I introduce it? Please do. Introduce okay. that crap. So, <laughs> so, NPR has decided to, and to use the appropriate buzzword, crowdsource some of their articles. Okay, and one of these... stupid idea that is to begin with, but go ahead. One of these... 
is the 100 best... I, I don't know what criteria contributes best, though. Well, it, it Science actually fiction isn't. and fantasy books. Now, why they, do don't, they don't say best. They do yes, say they do. top. No. The, the title of it reads, Your Picks, Top 100 so Science Fiction Fantasy best. Books. So does that mean they got the most votes? Yes. It or doesn't. It no, it just says that according to the 60,000 people who voted, um, yeah. and, and, well, there were 5,000 people who nominated books, um, the, these are the top from these 60,000 votes. And uh, J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien is the prom queen. Which is okay. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely fine. And then second, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide yep. to the Galaxy. I'm cool with that. Like, that. I'm okay with that. And Ender's Game, awesome. Uh, Hold on. Could be Hold on. Down the list, uh, actually. Hold on. You know what? Orson Scott Card is okay. Ender's Game is an okay book. There awesome. are at least ten books farther down that deserve to be in that spot. And yeah, yes. when you're talking about, I understand why it's there because you're talking about NPR listeners. And you're talking about a certain segment of people who use the internet. So latte sipping morons is what we're talking about. <laughs> hey, twenty something eggheads. Twenty something <laughs> nerds like me would say Ender's that's Game right. is a great book because you know that was one of my favorite that books as a kid. Well, that was, still doesn't make it correct. The other problem with <laughs> hey, the list is the Snap. list is your favorite science fiction and fantasy novels. I know, and, and yes, this is why we're it's tearing true. it apart. This it's is wrong. one of my favorite science fiction and fantasy novels. All right, all right, all right. Let's keep moving. Number four, Dune. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, we expected that Dune. to be in there. I'll give it Dune. That was great. I expected that to be there, but nowhere near at that level. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah. No, it's it be that's up because there. the the books are so awesome. They're the best. Well, some of them. They're all awesome. Well, all the no. ones that were written by Frank Herbert. Herb. Okay, there you no, go. But you had, to, you had to put that, that condition on it, so. Okay. All right, uh, all right. Song of Ice. However, you will notice that in the article um, that they don't just have the Frank Herbert. They also have the Brian Herbert stuff in there as well. No, they don't. It's kind of about? Dune is the collection, right? Yeah. They're oh, talking. It's the Dune Chronicles by Frank Herbert. It, the Dune Chronicles are the canonical six books. Yeah, those are the originals, Dune. not the, not the crappy ones. It doesn't have the days or or the. All right, all right. Next one, A Song of Ice and Fire series. This does not even belong in the top fifty. R R R R R. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The last book. First of all, first of all, he cannot write. He's a fantastic author. He's a horrific writer. Oh boy. His books are great. His books are crap. Especially the last one. Especially the last, like, three. Nothing happens. You could have told the story in a trilogy. And everyone would have been fine with that. I don't need to know every time a character has the shits. <laughs> the development of these characters Sucks. is... There's is, no is, development. There is, is okay, okay, okay. No Clean break. Oh Clean break. No, 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 no. Go ahead, Java. Clean break. Go ahead. And what? number six is 1984, followed closely by number seven. <laughs> Why is 1984? Really? Yeah, it kind I of had a question on that, too. 1984 by Orwell is, is the birth of real dystopia. And yeah, but yeah. dystopia is not science fiction. Yes, it is. No, it's, it's not. 
It certainly is. It's, it's certainly, futuristic okay, dystopia, dystopia. is just a vision of the future, and it's speculative fiction, but it is not science fiction. In order to be science fiction, you have to have some sort of technology or, quote, science. Well, actually, you do in, in 1984. Well, the screens of Big Brother. Right. You, you do have the Big Brother uh, concept. Okay, so 1984 is, counts, but dystopia itself does not count, and just being a dystopia does not... A criteria for 1984 to count. Well, when we get to the Handmaid's no, Tale, I'll be happy to agree with you about that. Uh, that's not what makes 1984 science fiction. That that's what makes 1984 a dystopian novel, which is is not the first dystopian novel. I mean, no, but it's one of the seminal. It is one of the seven seminal ones. But I mean, there's there's all kinds of futuristic technology. You have to remember that that book was written in 1949. Correct. I mean. The, the concept of wall screens and, 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 you know, radios that, you know, were controlled remotely, all of that stuff is, is you know, that's all futuristic. So, so I would say put this in your top 100 dystopia novels, but not your top 100 science fiction it's, novels. It's a science and I would disagree with you on that. But, okay, I'm agreeing with you that it is science fiction, but I don't think it's, like, the best science fiction. No, I disagree. I don't think this one belongs in the top 15. I, I say I put it in the top 20, but I probably wouldn't put it this far up. Okay, I wouldn't okay. put it this far up either, but I think it absolutely belongs in the list. Yeah. As does Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451 yeah. probably should be third. Yeah. <laughs> Fahrenheit 451, we're still dealing with these whole issues of censorship. We just talked about that tonight. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you, you jerk. To round out the top. Uh, Scroggins. The rest. <laughs> The rest of the <laughs> Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Good Why call. Foundation. But I mean, yeah, that's that's a poor choice for Asimov. And, I, and I'd like to oh, point oh. out that NPR wrote triology. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Triology. <laughs> that's a cool word. It is a it, cool word. Well, it's no, a new word. NPR, is, NPR is, has invented a new word. Yes. <laughs> uh, number nine is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, which is fantastic. A good um, book. A very good book. And Top ten, though? Round out, round out the number. The number ten spot is American Gods by Neil. That Gale. should not be there. <laughs> it's it fantasy. shouldn't be in the top fifty. It's fantasy, and Maybe I think it's, it should not be it number is ten. Fantasy, but it should be at least in the lower fifty. And Neil Gaiman has way too many spots on this list. And the the only reason Neil, Neil, Neil Gaiman, Gaiman has any spots on this list at all is because he's a pop writer. Well, that's why a lot of things are uh, in here. I, I think I'm going to go start skinning a little quickly through here. I, I would have rather have seen Good Omens in there instead of American yeah, Gods. Yeah, Good Omens isn't even on here, and I think Good Omens is better than American Gods. Agreed. Agreed. And I don't like either of them, really. Princess Bride shouldn't sure. be there. No, of course it should. It's why? It's oh, epic please. Oh, oh epic please. It's awesome. That should absolutely be on there. As oh, should number 12, Wheel of Time. Yes, and I agree with that. Yeah. Animal Farm. No, I'm Animal Farm should not be Animal on Farm. there. Animal Farm is an allegory and nothing. Yeah, it, isn't, it isn't technically science fiction, nor is That's it That's right. But it's That's fantastic right. in the fact that it... I'm not saying it's a bad book. Just saying great it's not literature. Right. It's great literature. It's not It is good literature. That's right. It might... It, I, I can see why they would put it on the list because it, there could be an argument that it would be fantasy. Yeah, but it's a really. It may be element. an allegory, but talking animals is a fantastic element, and in fact, it's one of the characteristics of fantasy uh, fiction. Okay, okay so think about and the this red needs to be in the top twenty. 
And if Mr. What? Ed isn't there, then <laughs> Animal Park should be. That's uh, all I'm saying. Oh, uh, Mike Gibson. Yeah, I know you're going to say graphic novels shouldn't be on the list, but Watchmen. No, is on. I'm fine with graphic novels. <laughs> you know what? Though I think I feel like you could make a whole separate list for graphic novels. I feel like that's probably a great idea, but. Hey, it's, in in italics, okay. they put a graphic novel. I know that's the only one they do it to too. They have Sandman on here. That doesn't get opera. They don't do it. Judge them on different criteria, though, because like, are you really looking at the writing quality of? I mean, like, the writing quality that you look for is different. The writing quality of Watchmen is amazing, though. That's Alan Moore's master. It is Alan Moore, and it, and Alan Moore is a terrific writer. But I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure that it belongs in this. Does it belong list. one spot before iRobot? No. And, no. and two spots no. before Stranger in a Strange Just Land? Strange. No, Absolutely that would no. be one and two, or two and three, or three and four. But for Christ's sake, 16 and 17? Shoot me now. What well, the I hell mean, are they thinking? Here, hey, look at number point. 19. Look at number 19. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry, has anybody ever read number 18? The King no, I've King never King read it. I've never heard about it. Me either. Um, we're going to go ahead and assume that that is fantasy and probably pretty good, but slap it for being number 18. I'm going to put it on my list of things to read. Yeah. Sure. Put it on my uh, list. Number 19 is Slaughterhouse 5. Slaughterhouse 5. There's a big red X through it, it, and it says not in Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's a good spot for that book. Yeah. Uh, Number 20 is Frankenstein. Belongs Uh, there. Belongs there. But see, I would say I would say that that it's uh, I don't know. Anyway, that's another discussion for another day. And uh, then we have Philip K. Dick for the first time, which surprised me. It's that low, but he's not a pop culture. He's not. Well, I mean, just think of all the things that you could put in front of Philip K. Dick: any Heinlein book, any Asimov, Bradbury, Clark. Right, makes sense. Uh, So you know, Philip K. Dick being in the twenties is actually kind of feels right. Look but at 20, not, not 20, with some of the shit that's above it, though. Look at 22 and 23, and then be prepared to gag. Okay, the Handmaid's Tale. I'm going to stick up for myself here and say that The Handmaid's Tale is a phenomenal book. No. It's a phenomenal book. It's not good science fiction. It's not supposed to be science fiction. I have a problem with it being on this list. Me too. There we go. That's, that's my that's issue with it. But that's my issue with it. You know, I've read the book a number of times. I like the book. It might be fantasy, maybe. I think it's No, it's just dystopia. I think it's it's mistaking dystopia of a social allegory, to be honest with you. No, it's a dystopia. She did the amount of research. Dystopia and science fiction are not mutually exclusive. You can have a science fiction dystopia. Yeah, Yeah, but all dystopia is not science fiction. It's speculative fiction, and if they wanted to make a speculative fiction list, they should have done it. They should have, but it doesn't belong on this list. They should have included YA, and then we wouldn't be having a lot of these arguments. Okay, okay, the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Gag. It's on my list to read. Should Stephen King be on this list? Probably not. Uh, I know know that it's one of X's favorite sets. The stand is 25. I know. For 23... Okay, so so we have the first entry for Clark here at 24. Yeah, 24. It's, it's 24 spots before you see Arthur C. Clark. That's right. a sin. And you see King beforehand. But, and but, after him. All right. Yeah. All right, and so the stand. The stand I know nothing about 26. Yeah, me neither. Oh, Snow Crash? Are you kidding? Neil Stevenson? Snow no, I haven't Stevenson read it. It's a fantastic... Uh, if you... 
if I've you don't hear anything name. else, uh, there's where is it? It's sitting on my on my desk right now. Um, Neil Stevenson on this list, I can totally go for. I don't know if I'd go for him being this high up though. Cryptonomicon, one of the best science fiction novels. That's I've on read. here too, actually. I, I I mean, there Neil Stevenson is a is a is not a his writing style takes some work. You really need to pay close attention throughout the entire book to pick up on what he's what he's doing. But he's yep. a, he's a good author. It's just it's so tedious because his books are like five thousand pages long. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Maybe so, this more. Java. So twenty seven is. But he Brad- just doubles the pages. It's like it's the same page twice. <laughs> twenty seven is Bradbury's second issue. Finally. Martian Chronicles. Twenty eight is Vonnegut's second. Cat's Cradle. Both amazingly terrific, yes. wonderful books. Yes. Twenty nine is Sandman, which should have been higher than in oh. the other Gaiman book. The American novel. I don't know. I think American again, like, again, why don't they have a graphic novel in ICL yeah. after Sandman? Yeah, well, you're right. I'm, this is this is the, the, the weird thing is that he they, they say the Sandman series, but what they have there is Preludes and Nocturnes, which is a completely separate thing. You're right. It is. I just finished reading the Sandman series, actually, and um, which is damn cool. It's, now it's you know a, why our cat is named Daniel. <laughs> but I mean, it's just I don't know. I don't, I believe that it, that if you're going to include Watchmen, including Sandman, makes sense. But I don't know. I don't well, think either of them belong on here. Just because they're graphic novels, not because they suck. And number 30, Clockwork Orange Dystopian. Doesn't belong here. Oh, really? No, not, not science fiction, not fantasy. Oh, that's true. That's true. It it's not science fiction. fiction. It's, just dysto- it's confusing dystopia with science fiction again. All right, next, Starship right. Troopers, which is a science fiction dystopia. But, but possibly not- one of Heinlein's worst books. That's true. It's not even 30, belong on this list. 32, Watership Down, which doesn't belong in any list. <laughs> yeah. Also, Anne McCaffrey, who doesn't belong on any list. Like, I love yeah. Anne McCaffrey. She's like my guilty pleasure candy reading. Like, if I want to rot my brain for a while, I read Anne McCaffrey. <laughs> yeah, but science but, fiction can be candy, too. It's okay. And fantasy can be candy. What else do you call Piers Anthony? What what do you call? Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, Piers Anthony. Total. Yeah. Yeah, but Robert Aspirin. The same thing. color of her panties. Yeah, yeah. I got Robert in trouble Aspirin. taking that book home when I was thirteen years yeah, old. Yeah, but Piers <laughs> Anthony is at least good writing. Anne McCaffrey has gotten nothing no, but Anthony gay sex. <laughs> okay, here's two Moving books. <laughs> here's two books that belonged in the top ten. Thirty-four. Yes. Moon is a harsh mistress by Heinlein. 35, Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. Miller, Jr. I don't know I don't know about The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, but Canticle, Canticle for Leibowitz it belongs. Oh, uh, this one should have been in the top ten, too. How about The Freaking Time Machine? How about 20,000? No kidding. That was a boring book. Gosh, that was a boring book. Great book, and, and, and a, the original movie with, uh, oh, God, who was it? It was Gene, Gene Barry. The original movie with Gene Barry was terrific. Great book in 1895. <laughs> if you keep it in mind that it was written, it says in- of all time. It does say of all time. Yeah. Remember, you know, you're talking about a different style of writing. You're talking about a different 
formulation of, of sentences, paragraphs, thoughts, and ideas. H.G. Wells is not writing the way a modern writer writes. Yeah, she's way hotter. <laughs> so much hotter. Uh, and then, you know, you got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The first yep. Jules Verne shows up. Uh, yep. Flowers for Algernon. Why should be. Seriously? That is science fiction. I know it's science fiction, it's but science. it's not good science fiction. It may be good literature, but it's not good science fiction. It's really crappy science fiction. Actually, no, actually, I think that that's great science fiction. It takes a a it the it's a direct result of the science fiction. Like it's the it's the science that that alters science the person. changed his brain because yeah, they, and, and they that and, and but I, I think, think the science fiction is less a central part of the story as a MacGuffin. To make the story go, but it is well. You could replace it with magic and and have the same story. But the the point is that there's been a change in the person. You could do that for almost any of this science fiction and have the same result. Actually, you couldn't, and here's why: good science fiction should rely to some degree on good science. Daniel Keyes doesn't do that. I, I don't. For, I don't I think, think he compared does. Compared to a lot of the science fiction we've been talking about, this is a heck of a lot closer to reality and what real science is endeavoring to do and can do. Wait, than. are you a biologist? Then shut up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I am if I'm a biologist. Uh, right, no, are you an associate this, professor of business? Then <laughs> shut up. I mean, I'm, when I'm talking about uh, altering, you know the chemistry of the brain that's what this is talking about right right but it's talking about it in a very simplistic non-scientific way and that's not that's not the focus of the book and most of the best science fiction that isn't the focus of the book either but the problem the problem stranger to strange land is not it doesn't rely on science fiction to make oh it it absolutely does are you serious are you serious the science in stranger in a strange land is precise and accurate. But that's not what makes it a good book. No, it's what makes it the framework of a good book, and that's the difference between that and Daniel Keyes. All right, but, enough of Flyers for Algernon. War of the Worlds. That's pretty good. Deserves yeah, to be yeah, pretty good. Again, boring. The Amber Chronicles, never heard of it. I have. I've read it. And wasn't I've impressed. heard of it. I wasn't impressed either. The Belgariad. Oh, I really liked this one. Okay, somebody had to. It was you. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. <laughs> to, uh, to Mr. Washi and all the friends in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, yes. that This was like, you had wait, to wait, read wait, it. Wait, wait. Maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Is this the myth one? The Mists of Avalon? No, 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 no. Like, the Bulgarian? Wait, this, is, this is a collection, right? Maybe I'm th- I think I'm thinking of a totally different thing. You're you may be. Like, the, they're all like puns on the word myth, like myth direction no, no that's not even no that's robert aspirin that's uh, myth adventures i read right. something of david eddings that i liked i'm not sure if it was but that's one. that's not what this is at all no oh whoops oh no moving on mists of avalon by marion zimmer bradley retelling of the king arthur legend yeah it's an interesting book it's an interesting series it's okay it's not top 100 not top 100 42 Actually, I would say that that's about right for the Mists of Avalon. It's it's a really good book. It's well it's well written. See, it is well written. It is well written. It, it's in the fantasy genre. It does a good job. It's just not my cup of tea ever. I don't think it's anyone's cup of tea. It's like it's only the cup of tea of people who like eat their own placenta. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is exactly it. 
on a list <laughs> of best books for people who eat their own placenta, then this is number one. This is it's number one. Uh, number one was a bullet. Can, can we just stop for a minute and just think about how asinine it is to have a list of sci-fi and fantasy books? Yes. Um, well, the problem is that from a pop culture point of view, which is all NPR is doing here, uh, it's very easy for mainstream uh, latte sipping uh, eggheads eggheads to <laughs> lump the two together, and it's a silly thing to do. It's and an you, asinine thing to do. It doesn't. A work. hard science fiction writer will tell you that they don't do fantasy. A fantasy writer will tell you they can't do hard science fiction. They, they, they are lumped together simply by means of generics. And may, I, may, may, I, may I please talk about somebody who was able to cross the genres, and that's Fritz sure. Leiber, and he yeah, doesn't right. have a friggin' book in here? Right, he doesn't. Yeah, but you know who does? Brandon Sanderson soul. has the Mistborn trilogy at 43, and I only know about him because he's writing the Wheel of Time books, um, the, the last two Wheel of Time books. So I haven't read them, but apparently they're really good. And then you've got Larry Niven again for Ring. Makes sense, but makes sense. He's he's damn good. He's a yeoman's work writer, and he right. does a damn uh, good job of it. The left and forty four, forty five is about right. Left hand of darkness could do without it, but it's okay where it is. Uh, Silmarillion does not belong on this list. It is so bad. And no, I love does, the Silmarillion. I like. Well, it. if you like Tolkien, you're gonna like the Silmarillion, but I don't think it belongs on the top hundred books of all time. And how about the Once and Future King? That belongs with Mists of Avalon. Thank yeah. you. In a corner. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, the Once and Future King is a fantastic book. Yeah, it, I'm not going to put the Once and Future King with the Placenta Eaters. No. <laughs> and then you've got Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Okay, uh, okay there yeah, we go. This, this, this is his third hit. Yep. Meanwhile, two Bradbury, one Clark. Except two one the nine, which is Childhood's End by Arthur's. Right, right. You, you're telling me that you know. Uh, I'm sorry. The the no. There, there's there's a sense Childhood of childhoods end should have been a lot higher. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, number fifty, we have contact. Okay. No. Moving on. And, okay. Thank no, you. Can, can we just cut it off there because we're already at 25 minutes past the hour, and, and yeah, we got halfway right. through the list, and that's pretty much how it continues. It, it keeps going along those same lines. I don't know. We get some good stuff. In the second half, and we got some really crappy stuff. People can go and look at the list on their own. Right, exactly. I do yes, want to say can. that I read a blog post from one of my very favorite authors, Robin McKinley, and her novel Sunshine, which I actually reviewed. Ninety-two. Blog, yeah, is on the list. Is number ninety-two, and she makes some very interesting points on the discussion we've been having um, about. Uh, genre and where do these books belong and do they belong on this list do they not um and i think we should link that in the in the show post i will but say i mean and you know point. what i was point about this whole list this is a poll it was a it was a poll that was taken you know by npr so they right. got a lot of hits from a lot of people who listen to npr and not only that, but it wasn't what are the best ones there it was what are your favorite that's ones. right Yep. And, so this and, is a pop cult. This is a popularity contest. And not only like you that, said, but so the prom queen. The people, the people who are going to go on and do this type of poll are not going to be the old people like Dome. Hey, hey, like, hey, 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 hey! Who, who enjoy, you know, 
making a, a distinction between the golden age of science fiction and, and modern science fiction and fantasy. And, and you know, the, so the, the specific group of people that this is, is based on, the opinions that it's based on, is very small. And they're and, assholes. And it's not, meant, it's not meant to be a definitive list of the best science fiction, but it is interesting to see what people, when they read science fiction and fantasy, what do they like? Yeah. You know, what do they really like? Because, yeah, there are going to be books that are, that are fantastic that are not on this list from a perspective of someone like me who has a wide range of literature experience or Dome or Kriana or any of us who are, who are in the genre and are, who are... Uh, Fingers on the pulse, dog. Well, yeah, but we're also, we are also the assholes who will talk about how much a piece of fiction sucks, no matter how much people like it. Like, That's right. For example, Twilight. People yes. love that fucking book. There are people who love that book so much, and they will not, they don't give a damn what our opinion is of it. I, I know having experienced that firsthand. They yep, don't care what, whether or not it's a good book. They love it. It's the same uh, with, with uh, you know, right now, all kinds of people are telling me that I have to read The Hunger Games. They say that it's a great book. I don't know. They so, The same people told me Twilight was a great book. No, it's actually so, a great book. I've heard that. But see, that's the point. Just because something's popular and people like it doesn't mean that it's good. And, and this list was never meant to say what was good. It was only meant to say what do people like. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to wrap this up with Winter is uh, in the chat room, and he summed it up as no Fritz Leiber, no Spider Robinson, no Harlan Ellison, That's no right. Ben Bova, no Harry Potter. That's because YA was not included oh, on this list. Oh, that's true, that's true. I guess it's targeted for young but see, But see, Ender's Game is YA. Well, yeah, they, they had a lot of things that snuck in. But I'm pretty so sure. So is Bulgaria, that was number three. It was number three. Yeah, I think that excluding, like, trying to denote. You never really know but when no, you write a book with, who it's going to appeal to. You can't control who it's going to appeal to. There are grown ass men watching My Little Pony. And <laughs> yes, there are, unfortunately. Like, you cannot predict who's going to love your book. So, you know. M pigeonholing it into YA and saying, we're going to, you know, throw all young adult books. Who knows? They may have thrown Twilight into young adult. Maybe, or probably they threw it into horror, technically. And, um, I think they, they threw it into the category suck. Yeah. Well, no, they probably didn't, which is too bad. But um, what I'm saying is when you pigeonhole books like that, you lose a lot. And then you get a lot of crossover where you didn't intend it to be. So I think it's a sort of a meaningless distinction as to who the book is technically targeted for. Because Harry Potter was, yes, targeted to young adults. Did it, did it appeal to a wider audience? Well, hell yes, it did. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making jillions of dollars on it. I'm holding and, my and for for another graphic novel, read Unwritten, which is kind of a discussion of what we're just talking about. Hey, Kriana? Yes. You know what? We've been going for an hour and a half. It's time to rev up the Wayback Machine and hit the theme, girl. Okay. Next week, we have Everett Soares talks to us about the Sky Pirates of Valandor Comics. Who do we have and after that? 
And then we go right into Sci-Fi Saturday Night as the official podcast of the Boston Comic Con and of Comic Art House, your one and only source of original comic artwork. Please visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music is provided by Zanoise, and please pick up their CD, The Benevolent Beast, on iTunes. Don't? Yes, I want to thank Wesley Scoggins for being a book burner and <laughs> Anthony Del Cole, co-creator of Kill Shakespeare, who we met at Boston Comic Con. And I'm telling you, Kill Shakespeare is a terrific, terrific, terrific series. Pick it up, read it, it's fun. Yes. From the North Shore Kraken Nursery, former cardboard wrangler, thank you, Kriana, for all that you do. Uh, people need to be more educated. And from the Pastafarian Reading Room, thank you, Zombrarian. From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, great thanks to the Deadhead Redhead. Always my pleasure, darling. Deadhead Redhead. Deadhead Redhead. I'm really tired, man. I don't like that. Thank you, Java. So long, farewell, Peter's and adieu. This is Don't Stay and Stop Burning Books, because Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy is increased. Thus, we all refute entropy. Good night, everyone. Good night! Hey, nonny, nonny.